Hello everyone, this is Sakib welcoming you to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. Uh, this is Lucky Days for the podcast. Of course, the world is suffering and, you know, uh, there are some advantages. You can catch busy people during this time. Of course, I would trade this in a heartbeat to, for things to become normal. But while we are at it, uh, last week was Mike Proctor and this week uh, South Africa seems to be the theme. Let me welcome uh, Crick Info reporter, writer, Ferdos Munda. Uh, a very familiar name if you read cricket. Uh, so it's an honor to host you, Fedos. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's really cool to be here. Yeah, I've been, uh, we've been trying and, you know, it's not like you didn't want to come. It's been like almost a year and a half. The schedules didn't match and then, uh, you know, lives get busy and we, lo- we love your writing. So for, for the listeners who are here, uh, most of them are diehard cricket fans and you are a household name for your coverage of uh, all things cricket. Uh, Just fill our listeners in, how did this start for you? When did you decide that you will be working in cricket professionally? Yeah, taking me quite a a long way back there. Um, I worked as a cricket scorer at the Wondrous Stadium when I was still at school, so that was several years ago. And um, one of the jobs that I did was uh, internet scoring, which today is the ball-by-ball on Crick Info at the time. And I think still today, um, at South, in South Africa, the domestic games are scored and commentated on from the grounds. So that was one of the things that I did. And in doing that, I got to know the people at Crick Info. I think it was still um, Wisden Crick Info at the time. I don't think it had yet been bought by ESPN. Um, and that was around the mid-2000s, so 2004 five, um, When I finished my undergraduate degree, um, I needed to get work. So... Yeah, things just kind of worked out from there, and I uh, I kind of lucked into the position in some ways. Um, It was a very small position at the time, and Cricket Info were just starting to get correspondence um, outside of India and and the UK. So I think I was the first outside correspondent, um, and then afterwards we got Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and and so on. Um, And I've been there ever since. I took a sabbatical in 2018, yeah, 2018, and uh, I'm back. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's quite a journey, and I'm always interested uh, for my guest, uh, you know, for reporters or players when they come on the show. So that, that's uh, some rare insight for everyone who reads your columns. So we live in COVID, you know, this is unprecedented times. I know this phrase has been used like millions of times, but the world has changed. So when I see you keep uh, reporting or writing articles in Crick Info, if anybody can go to the South Africa page on the Crick Info, your articles are there, maybe more than few a week. So what's the cricket conversation like in South Africa uh, right now? Uh, is the board financially solid, sound enough to come out of this in a very healthy way, given uh, there's so many uncertainties with the money involved and, you know, everyone's losing more than a chunk of their season, home series. So talk about, you know, what's going on, what are you hearing, and uh, enlighten our fans here. Well, I think actually, you know, we're busier than maybe we would have wanted to be at this time because usually April and May is when South African cricket goes really quiet. The IPL is on and we always have the international window that is stopped for that. So, you know, I was due quite a lot of leave, to be honest, when the, when this happened. But, um, yeah, now obviously with, with no live cricket at all, uh, we are looking at being able to still – just engage readers and, and to kind of look at the stories that we don't always get the chance to do. So that's from a journalistic point of view. From a cricket board uh, financial point of view, again, you know, South African cricket was about to go into its off-season anyway, so really it hasn't lost anything so far, and it won't lose anything until the new summer starts. So if our summer gets cancelled, 
then I think there's a real risk that South African cricket could financially suffer. It's worth remembering that the board is not in a very strong financial position anyway. Um, they've just been through a period of crisis uh, in which a lot of money was poorly spent, including on launching the T20 competition, the Mzanzi Super League. So we really have a good few months to, to play with here. Um, South Africa's next series in Sri Lanka has been postponed, but anyway, that wouldn't have made the South African board any money. In fact, it saves them money because they don't have to fly and, and pay for those costs. Then they do to go to uh, West Indies in July, August. And again, if they don't go, that will save them the flight costs. And then obviously the, the fate of the T20 World Cup will have a significant impact. But the home summer is only due to start around uh, October, November. And I, I guess then we'll have a clearer picture of things. Okay, so that's, uh, again, news to me, and I'm sure uh, news to a lot of uh, others. So how does this work? Again, this is a question stemming out of your response. Uh, so how do these overseas tours work? So there's no financial gain for most boards, or each board has a different clause. Say, if you're going to BCCI, or you know, touring the Pakistan in UAE, how does these uh, partnerships work? Are they all unique in its, its own aspect, or is it a standard uh, way of uh, doing business in cricket boards? You don't make money off the overseas board, overseas trips. Yeah, exactly. You don't make money when you travel overseas because that, <clears throat> sorry, the income and the broadcasting rights then belong to the host country. So you would typically pay for your flights to get there and then the host country would pay for your accommodation and they would make the money from gate revenue and from the, the broadcast rights. Okay, fair enough. So, uh, yeah, there's a uh, whole lot of direction this conversation can go and, I, <laughs> you know, uh, because, uh, you know, your knowledge and your closeness to so many things close to the pulse of South African cricket. So let's talk about the domestic structure. Most fans, you know, I mean, I, I'm originally from India, I live in the US, but most of my friends are uh, still of Indian origin and South African players are very popular, be it Amla, be it Stain, be it De Villiers, even back in the day, Donald and Macmillan and, uh, you know, uh, Rabada, you name it. So so most questions that I've lobbied when I said Ferdos is going to come on the show, I reached out to my cricket banks, you know, of knowledge and everybody wants to know how's the domestic structure looking? Uh, can South Africa, are they in position to reproduce a world-class unit? Because a lot of the yesteryear players are in their twilight. Most of them are gone. Uh, so talk about that. And is there any uh, ball preference, white versus red, when you see for development? So it's a two-tier question. Uh, take it as yeah. uh, as you want to address. I mean, I think that's a tricky one because South African domestic cricket is undergoing some serious change. Since 2004-05, we've had a two-tier system where we have six franchises that play in what's considered kind of the top level, and then 13 provinces that play also, they're also classified as first-class cricket, but they play a three-day competition as well as a one-day and a T20 competition. So, yeah, we've had these two tiers, and, and, and both of them earn salaries to varying degrees. So the bottom tier is more semi-professional is what we call it here. We used to call it amateur cricket. Uh, and I think that that has been the source of a huge amount of debate over the last few summers, and, and there's talk of that being restructured. It was due to be restructured ahead of this season, but that has now been scrapped. So we'll go into the next summer, 2020-2021, with the six franchises and the 13 provinces, but there'll be fewer first-class matches played because the franchises will now be divided into two groups of three. So instead of playing 10 matches, they'll only play seven. And, I mean, I don't really know if you can prepare test cricketers on seven first-class matches a, a summer. I think that's too few. Uh, and then we will have our 50-over competition. The T20 competitions have now been turned into the Mzanzi Super League, which is a loss-making competition as it stands. It's pretty entertaining, uh, and it has 
definitely brought players like Rassi van der Dissen and Sisanda Magala into the selectors' uh, radar, and maybe they weren't before. So I think it has its advantages, but obviously in these times to do anything that loses money um, is not great. You know, the one thing with South Africa is we have a large population and we have a sports-loving population and we have very good schools and they continue to produce very good players across sporting codes. So we produce good rugby players, we produce good cricket players. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, we produce good soccer players too, but that comes out of a club system. And so uh, I think we'll never be short of, of talented players. We are a, an outdoorsy country and we enjoy competition, although we can't go outdoors at the moment. But... Um, yeah, it's just about whether we can keep up to the pace of, of the rest of the world. You know, South Africa doesn't have the the money-making capacity of a country like India. It doesn't have the appetite for cricket uh, for a country like India or England or Australia, for that matter. So, yeah, it's really about having a globally competitive edge. And um, I guess the next few years will we'll really uh, have the answers to that. Wow, that's quite uh, the unpacking you did there. So there's a lot, lot to ponder there. So let me just narrow it down to what we had discussed uh, uh, in an exchange earlier uh, regarding the podcast. So the six-team uh, model, is this inspired by the Australian uh, model or is it just uh, the the cricket power saying that's the best way to go by saturating the competition? Do you see any disadvantage? I know you mentioned it, but let's take it in isolation. Yeah, it was actually um, really modeled on the Australian idea and the kind of distilling of, of uh, strength versus strength. So instead of having you know, 10, 12, maybe 14 provinces playing against each other, you now have really strong franchises playing. And I think in the early years, it, it definitely worked. Uh, it, it, obviously, there are problems in terms of geographical loyalty, because, for example, we had um, Gauteng merging with, with Potchefstroom, which are two different places in in the High Felt and, and Benoni merging with Pretoria. And I mean, they don't have very much in common. So I think that was quite difficult and, and building team identity was difficult. But, you know, it's been 16, 16 years now. So I think we've kind of got used to that system. And, you know, to go back to a provincial system would obviously afford more opportunity. We'd have more teams and then more players could could play. But whether you then dilute the competition, I, I suppose that's the argument we're having. And I think a good a good number to settle on is probably eight. And eight has been bandied about. And there's talk of another franchise in the Eastern Cape, which is really the heartland of, of black African sport and black African cricket in this country. And then maybe another franchise uh, in the central region. So at the moment... Bloemfontein and Kimberley, which are many hundreds of kilometers apart, could maybe be split into two, and then we'd get more more cricketers coming out of that region. Uh, personally, I mean, domestic cricket just doesn't make money in this country, so I'm not sure that there's any financial argument in favor of it, except that you need it in order to play international cricket, So, and in order to give people professional sporting careers. But I think you know, it's so difficult to really predict what will happen in the aftermath of this pandemic. I think Hopefully, global financial structures will be re-looked at, which is a different discussion. But, um, yeah, we, we might see some radical change for sure. Sure. Talking about radical change, sport, uh, as we consume it today, no matter if you're in India, if you're consuming American sports, you know, there's a lot of change going on. So are you close to what the South African fan is in terms of its consumption? You think a fan today is excited with South African cricket's white ball fortunes? Of course, we all know the fascination of the World Cup. So many classic, classy outfits in South Africa still came so close but never you know, got over the line. So do you think uh, the future of the game is test cricket? Uh, Mike Proctor said it's always a priority. How do you see it from the press room? you think the fans 
when you write about it, you think the fans uh, value more test cricket heroics or they want a hand on the on the World Cup trophy or, you know, with the IPL, they want more white ball cricketers. How do you see this pendulum is uh, swinging to which way these days? I think, interestingly, um, what, what's happened in South African cricket, and we see it from our, our stadiums, is that it has become more diversified. And so we're seeing fans across, uh, well, both genders or and, and many different racial backgrounds who are now able to access the game. So, so certainly people always watched, but they were not always able to access it, whether that was from a financial point of view or a geographic location point of view. So we're definitely seeing a, a, a greater spectrum of South Africans coming to the games. And, and when you look at who comes to which games, yes, yeah, certainly the white ball games do pull the big crowds. Uh, and definitely in smaller places, the Mzanzi Super League was a huge success. So the only smaller place that had a team was, was PAL, which is in the Cape Winelands. Uh, it's also the only uh, district which is which is considered a township, so an underprivileged or a historically underprivileged area, I suppose we should say. And um, I think that that is really the growth area of the game. Um, but, you know, South Africa had a very successful test team. They were unbeaten on the road for nine years between 2006 and 2015. And so I think people still value that. People still people don't have the time, and I don't know how much time they're going to have in the future either. Um, but I, I don't know that we will fill the grounds with people watching tests, but I think people are definitely interested. Yeah, you, again, that uh, the nine-year uh, run that you just mentioned is quite epic in its own way. Again, this is a question uh, that uh, most fans care about. South Africa's last few outings in India, especially in the Red Bull fortunes, haven't been too good. So, again, this is more a transition period. We should not overreact. But do you think uh, the challenges of playing on turning tracks and spin, which were a strength of a South African touring party not too long ago, you think are those, uh, are those values uh, on the cricket field are going to be filled soon? Do you think the system can produce those kind of cricketers again where you know, they can go and play on turning tracks? Well, I just—I mean, I want to start by saying that the 2015 tour of India uh, was not lost because South Africa couldn't play on turning tracks. It was lost because India prepared some of the worst pitches I've ever seen. So, <laughs> really, I mean, what, what happened there was, was I think, and, and this is not talking as a, as a partisan fan because I'm not, um, but I think that India were afraid, actually, of, of playing South Africa on fair pitches. That was a very, very good South African team. And those pitches, especially the one at Nagpur, were, were horrific, really. And then what happened was was South Africa lost that series, came home and decided we're going to prepare some revenge pitches of our own and spent the next few summers preparing green tops and bowling out Sri Lanka and Pakistan for very little. And that was pointless, really, because their own batsman's technique really suffered. And then came the, the 2019 tour to India, where suddenly they looked like they couldn't play on, on subcontinent tracks. But really, it was the Indian fast bowlers that were doing the damage. So long before the spinners came in, into action, we actually saw um, South Africa just being almost like uh, defeated at their own game. And so I don't know that, that the issue of playing spin necessarily in this example is, is really the, the, the problem and, and worth zoning in on. Certainly, there are lots of South African batsmen who have problems against spin and they they routinely go on the spin camp to India to try and solve those problems and they still haven't been able to. But then there are also players who are really good players of spin, like Faf Duplessis, like Avi de Villiers, like Hashim Amla. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily that. I think there's a lot of mental issues within South African cricket. One of them was that was, was the pitches on that tour to India. You know, before they'd even seen a pitch, we had players saying we're preparing for the worst pitches ever. And that was before they even knew what they were going to be faced with. So I think South African cricket and South African sport and South Africans in general tend to to build a lot of um, mental roadblocks where they don't need to be any. And, and that may be, you know, one of the reasons that a World Cup is still elusive. 
Um, the talent is there. I, I don't think that there's any, you know, the, South Africa doesn't lack in talent. And uh, if people can learn how to hit a swinging ball and a seaming ball, then I have no doubt they can learn how to hit a turning ball. But it's just about getting the right skills in place. And, and really, it's about getting their heads in the right place. Yeah, that was a... I mean, you hit the nail in the coffin there with the pitches and the surfaces. And uh, at our level, you know, I call myself a fan. I do this podcast, but no way I'm a professional, uh, you know, reporter. Uh, but this is something that never dies, you know, on, on cricket, Twitter, or even in friendly fan discussions, how the toss and how the surfaces are prepared. So has this changed to more drastic uh, means? Uh, because even when India went to New Zealand, uh, me and a friend were talking that uh, England were playing New Zealand before and we both were convinced that India would not get the same pitches and that's what happened they, the pitches were far more green and mm. we know how the test ended and then you just gave an example of South Africa and, and India exchanging you know some of the worst tracks for each other so has the mm. game shifted uh, with the packed calendar that there's no room to lose a home series so most home boards just listen to the captain and just uh, or the you know and prepare pitches per opposition which kind of takes out the fun of the game yeah, I think that was definitely the case. It was definitely the case in South Africa, um, and and yeah, you're absolutely right in saying that it does it does take out the, that element that you need of of some kind of neutrality. I mean, obviously, we want we want different conditions to be different. We want people to have to contend with different challenges when they travel to different places. And in South Africa, one of the things that you do have to contend with is is green tops. So we don't want that to go completely out of the game. But um, at the same time, yeah, I mean, we can't have some of the pitches that, that we've seen uh, two or three summers ago. You know, there's no point in that. Nobody benefits. None of the batsmen can score runs, not even the home batsmen. So, uh, I, you know, I think that definitely changed uh, the, the, this last summer that we saw. And, and it will probably continue to change. And you'll see that, you know, in places where you get drop-in pitches or more generic conditions, it will change as well. Um, but losing a home series is, is definitely something that teams just can't afford to do, as you say. So, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that, that, that it won't become completely one-sided and we won't get to situations where it is, win the toss and, you know, do what you're supposed to do at home and then you win the, the, the match in the series because that would obviously make it quite boring. No, true. I mean, we, we wish. I mean, the toss is taken out of the equation and the surfaces keep some sort of integrity all over uh, the cricket world so we can see a good contest. Uh, Another, my favorite question is, uh, I'm, you know, I've been watching cricket since the 80s, and when South Africa got readmitted, uh, the first similarity that stood out for us fans was they are very similar to Australia. There's a fascination with pace, attacking batsmen. So in terms of a rivalry, is Australia still the biggest ticket for an overseas tour when touring teams come to South Africa, or, or has Kohli and his men, you know, uh, risen to the charts? Does India bring out the excitement? Who are some of the top... Uh, teams that come to uh, South Africa, there's a reporter you can see there's more excitement than compared to the others. Yeah, I think Australia still uh, are the team that South Africans love to beat. And I think that's just from years and years of having lost to them. England are definitely right up there too. You know, they've won their last two series in South Africa and they've also beaten South Africa in England, uh, breaking a, a run of three undefeated series there. So, so England are definitely right up there. And yeah, just I think they they do tend to bring out um, some some old feelings in terms of the colonizer and the colonized, and, and then definitely India are, are right up there. You know, South Africa's got a large Indian diaspora for for many years. In fact, probably still, you'll find that South Africans of Indian descent who who suffered under the apartheid system will continue to support 
support teams that represent their heritage. And you'll find South Africans of Indian descent supporting India or supporting Pakistan and some supporting the West Indies for the same reason. Uh, and, and definitely people enjoy seeing India. I think the, the money aspect of India, India being a really uh, financially well-off cricketing country who can who can afford something like the IPL and who can afford to turn their players into megastars has also created something of a rivalry because South Africa definitely has nothing near that and, and would like to... Um, yeah, we'd just kind of like to see how they match up to that. So I think probably the three of them, um, Australia, England and India, are, are on par. And, you know, maybe Sri Lanka soon, too, because South Africa have lost their last four tests to Sri Lanka. So I think uh, pretty soon we'll want to be beating them, too. So, yeah, and that's, uh, again, uh, quite the... Uh quite unpacking there about Indians being the megastars. So I know you have access to most players because of your role at Crick Info. But do you think, uh, where, where do South African stars uh, measure up nationally, say, compared to the rugby stars? Are South African cricketers uh, in their own right seen as big stars? The A.B. de Villiers, Dale Stain, talk about the stardom in South Africa and their relation with press. Yeah, I mean, nothing will ever, ever compare to football and, and our football players remain our biggest stars. Um because also, I mean, the majority of our of our country uh, are football supporters before anything else. Um, rugby players, I mean, they've won three World Cups now, so that's a pretty big deal. And so they, um, you know, I, I think that they've definitely commanded a, a level of, of support as well. I think the big cricketers are stars in their own right. I mean, you mentioned A.B. and Dale Steyn, uh, but I'm not sure it's the same kind of celebrity culture as in India. South Africa doesn't have that kind of celebrity culture anyway. So I think that they definitely don't command the attention um, that Rihanna would, for example. Okay, so let's make this conversation to more current topics. Graham Smith is the boss man now. So Saurav Ganguly is the boss man in India. So do you, again, I don't know how, how often this happened, but do you think uh, cricketers can be good administrators and uh, part b of the question is do you think this is the right move because a cricketer will always have cricket at heart or while running administrations you need to have savvy business sense not that cricketers can't have both so how do you see the balance here i mean uh, are you more optimistic with smith at the top of top of the rankings i mean firstly i don't know if cricketers can make good administrators i think you need good administrators to make good administrators so being a cricketer i'm not sure how much weight that that carries and when, I mean, what, what you mentioned there about cricketers having cricket at heart, again, I'm not 100% sure about that. You know, cricket as it exists in its current form is is a business and is a capitalist entity. And I think what, what people have at heart is uh, making money. So I think that that is really what, 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 what drives things at the moment. I think it helps to have somebody with cricketing background and cricketing now and somebody who knows what it takes to make and build a successful cricketing outfit. So that certainly helps. And, and Graham Smith, since he's begun in the job, has seemed to do some really good things. At the same time, he's also definitely attracted criticism in terms of some of some of his decisions, which include maybe around the coaching staff. You know, he appointed Mark Boucher, which I don't think we can argue with. He's had good success with the Titans, who then appointed Jacques Callis and Paul Harris as his consultants. And you don't have to look much further than Herschel Gibbs' book, uh, which, you know, it's not a great literary work, but it, it will definitely tell you a couple of things about a particular clique that was said to run South African cricket at a point of time, which included Smith, Boucher, Callis. So the fact that we're seeing these names come up again definitely raises questions. Um, sorry, what was the second part of that question? The second part was, again, you answer like, can cricketers be good administrators? And then how can 
uh, he take cricket forward? Are you optimistic? Yeah, I mean, South African cricket has got a lot of things to work through in terms of its domestic structures, in terms of inclusivity and exclusivity. And it's going to take certainly more than one person to sort those issues out. So, you know, Graham Smith will have to be working very carefully with uh, the other administrators, with the players, with the South African Cricketers Association, for example. I think it's too early to tell um, whether we can be optimistic or not. You know, it's worth remembering that South Africa only won one out of five series this summer. So that's definitely not uh, something that, that people would be too optimistic about. But I suppose what they're doing is casting the net really wide selection-wise, and we're seeing a lot of players being tried at uh, international level. We're seeing just a little bit more experimentation, and there's definitely more of an openness, you know. In the early years of, of my career, I think that the South African team uh, displayed almost an arrogance of sorts towards towards everyone, including the media. And um, it was it was quite difficult to really know what was going on. These days, they're much more open. It's much easier to have conversations with players. It's much easier to get an idea of what's going on. And I think that that change has come probably, you know, since December, since we had the overhaul. And it's probably come for a few reasons, not least that, you know, they need some sort of public understanding at the moment. So, you know, hopefully this trajectory continues. I think there's some really nice characters in the team at the moment. They seem to be just guys and, and even the women's team, guys and girls, I suppose, who are who are really nice to talk to, who are respectful and who seem to understand that, you know, as much as they might be professional sports people and and you know, on some sort of pedestal, that they're also just people who people need to relate to and want to understand. And so we need that relationship to be open. Fair enough. And then uh, he's already said, uh, I think last week, that Quinton de Kock won't be leading the, the test side. Uh, are there any other candidates? Have you been Are you aware of which way? Who, who, who's going to land this job, the test captainship job? Well, we don't know for sure, but Rassi van der Dissen definitely stands out as a candidate. He's shown a huge big match temperament and... He's been in the runs as well, which always helps. I think Aidan Markram's name will come up too. He was the captain at the Under-19 World Cup when they won the tournament in 2014. So he's had problems with form. He's had problems with injury. But if they were going for a long-term solution, then he might be the guy. And I think the one we really can't ignore is Temba Bavuma. South Africa's never had a black African captain, which is, you know, one reason. And I probably shouldn't have mentioned it first. But that definitely would be a compelling reason to to look in his direction. But then Temba Bavuma has also had great success with the Lions franchise. He won the first-class competition uh, as captain of that franchise for the last two seasons. He's a deep-thinking guy. He's uh, really intelligent and I think the runs look like they're about to start coming, although we've been saying that for a while. So, yeah, I don't think they'd go wrong uh, with going going with Temba either. All right, so let's bring COVID back into the uh, conversation. If cricket were to be placed uh, behind closed doors, uh, you think some of these megastars and some of these professional cricketers, how would they cope playing a test match uh, in a very you know contentious series, say South Africa, Australia, with no fans watching? Of course, touring teams to UAE have witnessed you know, empty stands. But knowing that there'll be no fans, how does it change the game? And uh, you think South Africa, are they equipped if they know? And I know it's very hypothetical, hasn't happened yet. But uh, how do you see that? Uh, how do you envision that? I think South Africa will be absolutely fine with it. Most home tests have no fans anyway. So it wouldn't be such a big deal. Um, but I, I really think, I think that there will be much bigger considerations that would have to come into play. You know, if sport is to be played behind closed doors, 
We're talking about then prioritizing what is really an entertainment industry over various other things, you know, and the practicalities around it would really have to be considered. We all want to see sport back. We all need to see it back, especially those of us who work in it. But I'm not sure about the practicalities of it. From a coping perspective, um, I don't think that it would affect the South African players too much. I mean, all of our domestic competitions take place with very few people there. Um, many test matches take place with very few people there. Sure, there's a vibe that you'll miss, um, but I think they'll get over that. Maybe it's a bigger concern for Kohli and Co because they're used to the big crowd. So let's let's wait, okay. wait till that happens. So we have got like close to 11 minutes left. I want to make the most of this opportunity. So let's bring in AB de Villiers again. You know, fan favorite, a true superstar of the game. One of the you know one of the most loved athletes I think of our times. So let's talk uh, about his two years or maybe three years. You know the indecisive nature of his cricket. Of course, he's entitled to leave or, you know, end his career. But uh, are there any reasons that, uh, you know, somehow are not coming out uh, or some reasons like the the Kyle Albert Philander controversy of the 2015 World Cup? Uh, talk about his uh, relation to all things cricket in South Africa since that match. Yeah, I think A.B. de Villiers is a frustrating character because as talented as he is and... Uh, you know, we definitely can't discount the value he's added to South Africa in terms of runs. He's certainly not added that much in terms of certainty. Uh, neither has he added that much in, in, in terms of, of strength of character. De Villiers, you know, got quite sulky when he wasn't appointed test captain and then threatened an early retirement. And then Hashim Amla stepped down and then he was appointed test captain. And then he never got to take the job because he was injured. But as it turned out, he was a terrible captain anyway, which we saw in the in the one-day team. So, you know, then he took a, an extended sabbatical after his injury and then came back to play uh, the tests at home against Australia and India in that summer when we had 10 test matches um, and then retired. So, and then said he wanted to come back for the World Cup and now says he wants to play the T20 World Cup, maybe. So that is frustrating. I think there is definitely a sense that A.B. de Villiers, uh, although he says he doesn't believe that he's bigger than the game, some of his actions make it seem like he does think he's bigger than the game or that he does think that he can be quite selective, even though he says he's not going to be selective. So it's very hard to understand, really, what's going on there. And and as much as we want to appreciate him as a player, and he's done some fantastic things in the middle with the bat, it's, it's kind of difficult to see how he fits in. I think South African cricket needs to draw a line now and need to decide what they're going to do. You know, we don't know if a T20 World Cup will happen this year. I think if it does, there's a chance he could come back and play in that. And and if it doesn't, then maybe this is the time to to close the chapter on that because it, it, I think it's very unfair for several players who are playing week in and week out in the domestic system for not very much money in front of not very many crowds to be brought into the team when they're playing a random series against West Indies or whoever and then to be told that they're sitting out because A.B. de Villiers is coming back. I, I just think that that's, that that's bad professionalism in any event. So, uh, yeah, I think it will, a decision will need to be made and, and certainly he can't continue like this for too much longer and I think he knows that. Um, so, well, uh, if I may intervene, yeah. I think you only clap with two hands. I'm a big A.B. fan, so I don't want to put a counter-argument just for the sake of it, but we say in India, you know, you need two hands to clap. So if A.B. is at fault for his indecisions... Uh, board of South African cricket and Faf Duplessis when that chapter unfolded during the World Cup it was not needed that he could have been part of the uh, you know, touring side but they decided not to again you know so you have to hold both parties equally accountable uh, in my view unless you see it differently who are you holding accountable who's the other party uh, I think even to, for leaking that information from Faf Duplessis well, the don't, powers we don't leak the information I mean it could well have been A.B. de Villiers who leaked that information so um 
you know, we don't know who leaked that information. We'd, we'd be making an assumption there. Okay. Um, I, no, I don't think that we can hold um, anyone else responsible. Nobody, nobody told Abi to retire and nobody asked him to want to come back. Um, that those were his actions, which he must be held responsible for. And I think he understands that. Uh, could also, again, there be, you know, again, bringing a basketball analogy, when the Bulls and Michael Jordan were, you know, broken up, people thought they could win one more. And now since then, the Bulls have been rebuilding for 22 years. So you think sometimes the boards and uh, Graham Smith now is the power uh, job. We don't know how he's going to lean. But sometimes you have the fascination of if you bring De Villiers back, we don't know if the 20 World Cup is yeah, going to happen. Think- so you want to win that with that last window of opportunity because you never know when you'll get those kind of cricketers back in your outfit. So I think could that be... Uh, an area yeah, I, mean, I think that could definitely be a reason. But if we consider how many World Cups A.B. de Villiers has won, and that's a grand total of zero, then I'm not really sure what the fascination is about because it's not as though South Africa have won a World Cup with A.B. de Villiers in the team. Okay, fair enough. So and, uh, do you know, like, with, this is, again, much publicized thing with Philander and Kyle Abbott, and, you know, we, we can talk cold pack soon, but do you think when these kind of experiences have happened, have they scarred? the relation between the two players that were in the equation or players know that, you know, there is, uh, uh, how, how do I say it without full knowledge? There, there is like certain, you know, uh, dimension South African cricket and uh, there have been some political decisions, but uh, have you been close to this? If this kind of a decision uh, has scarred a player or player versus player relationship? Well, I want to start by saying that, um, you know, South African cricket has never been selected on merit. It has always been selected along racial guidelines. And I'm talking about pre-readmission days when the the quota in the South African team was 11 white players. So we need to start from that point of view, and we need to understand that there's a majority of South Africans who've been disenfranchised from professional sport. And they have absolutely every right to feel marginalized and absolutely every right to feel that they need to be represented. And so when the South African national team, which calls itself representative of South Africa, feels a team that does not look anything like the country's population and does not speak to or represent the country's population, I can totally understand why people would be upset. So political decisions, if you want to call them that, or, or social decisions, or you know, whichever term we want to use about this, um, are, are necessary. And, and finding a way to write the the disgusting past that South Africa has is essential. But at the same time, I mean, what was done at the 2015 World Cup could have been solved in many other ways. For example, Fahan Behadin could have played in place of Riley Rousseau, which would have filled the, the quota that was needed at the time. Uh, that wasn't done. And, and Kyle Abbott, who in outstanding form, should not have been dropped. So another solution should have been found for that. I don't know that the situation has made Kyle Abbott and Vernon Philander angry with each other. I think it's definitely made them angry with something. Kyle Abbott to the point where he then played for South Africa, said that he was committing himself to South Africa, but was actually found to be lying and had signed a cold pack deal. So that was a, a, a one sort of issue that went sour. And Philander, who's since revealed that that's also affected him and that it probably, you know, he didn't really play one day cricket after that. He lost trust in the administration, which is completely understandable. And Amy de Villiers, I think, was, was pretty scarred from that incident too. In fact, possibly the whole World Cup squad was. But I don't think that saying... Uh, it's wrong of the South African administrators to want a team that is more representative uh, of the country is necessarily the right way to look at this. I think we need to understand that South African society as a whole needs to change. Yeah, it is, it is quite the complex uh, 
topic and you were way too thorough and uh, I'm not qualified to, you know, uh, take this forward, but it's, I, I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm learning and, uh, and it's in all fairness. Uh, do you think uh, the overusage of Rabada, have you heard that term because of on the same merits, you think he could have been handled better or you think this again, the function of the political social nature of team selection? Talk about that. Well, I'm not sure if you're asking me if I think Kakisa Rabada is playing because he's black. I'm saying uh, could could uh, could could we use him in a more spearhead way? Do we overplay him? That's what a question came from one of my fans. Yeah, he has been played a lot, and it's showing. You know, he's he's looking a little bit uh, a little bit lethargic, a little bit maybe not as energetic as he looked when he started, and he and he definitely has bowled a lot. We've we've seen that, so he could certainly be managed better. And I think there are instances where he has had to play in the past because a quota needed to be met. So. I don't know that that's the case now. I think now the South African, certainly the white ball teams, and he's been rested from so many white ball games anyway, they don't need need him to make up any sort of quota and, and they probably need him to find some form in that department. In the test team, I mean, I still think that there's nobody else you pick, really. He's still your, your spearhead bowler, and for big tests, you're hoping that he's not suspended and that he's able to play. So um, management of Rabada will be important going forward. But again, it will depend on the volume of cricket, and I suppose we don't know what that will look like. No, that's uh, yeah, exactly. That's that's where I was coming from. And let me clarify: I'm a big Rabada fan, and I want him to win that fast bowling argument. Uh, again, another favorite of mine, Pat Cummins. But definitely, I've seen some decrease in his in, in his performance. Yeah. you know, it's, even though it's marginal. So another question uh, that uh, came out of our research when you know you were you decided to come on the podcast and is uh, since readmission uh, some of the big names not all of the big names like Donald Carlos de Villiers have been Africans and uh, has there been a history of Africans you know t- taking more cricket seriously like uh, they were not very uh, I think so if there were any all white school that were so focused on cricket so has that culture changed since the readmission or is just a is just a number that you know you know, that doesn't meet the eye what's happening there. I mean, in terms of uh, the talent shift. It could be. I mean, it's not something I've looked into in great detail. Uh, I think that, yeah, there probably was a time when English-speaking people, English-speaking white South Africans were more likely to to play cricket than Afrikaans-speaking white South Africans, or were more, not more likely to play, but more likely to be considered for teams at higher levels. And then that has definitely changed, and we do see a lot more Afrikaans-speaking white South Africans and Afrikaans-speaking South Africans of color, because not all Afrikaans people are white, um, coming up and, and into the national side. So I think I think Afrikaans sport has a particular culture of and, and a particular way of, of doing things, and you need to look no further than Anrik Nokia for some examples of that. You know, he describes it as kind of like a never-say-die attitude, a fighting attitude, and a almost a, a kind of lagerish mentality, I suppose. And so we, we certainly see that in rugby, and maybe we've seen that um, growing in cricket in the last couple of years, or probably even, as you say, since readmission, so the last 20, almost 30 years now. So, yeah, there's definitely been a shift in that department. And as I was saying earlier, you know, I think South African cricket in general and, and, and the face of South African cricket that presents itself to the world is becoming more diversified. So perhaps people only knew or people only thought that white South Africans played cricket, English-speaking white South Africans played cricket. And that, was, that has never been the case. You know, that, that's just not true. So to, for people to now see that, that cricket is actually diverse in this country um, is, is really good. Okay, so we are closing in on, you know, our stipulated times. Last two questions and we'll end this quickly. I know you have a place to be, so, or, or another interview or assignment. So, uh, 
uh, women's cricket uh, what's the health of uh, you know that side of things uh, you think that's uh, that's grown or what does the future look like for the south african women's cricket team pretty healthy at the moment they've had a sponsor since 2014 and so they they've since professionalization which is when when they got their sponsorship they've really improved in leaps and bounds they've reached the semi-finals now of uh, the last 50 over world cup and the last 20 over world cup and i think the team has got some incredible talent we've seen maybe again it's a mental thing it's about learning how to cope and deal with pressure but we've really seen them progress and and they're competing right up there with the big teams that are that have been professional for much longer than they have so i think the health of the women's game is is looking really really good obviously again like with everything you know this break in play could could be quite difficult for them because they just built up quite a lot of momentum they they did really well at that t20 world cup they were due to play australia at home and that series was postponed due to go to West Indies and England, and those series are unlikely to happen. And then there's the the 50 over World Cup next year. Again, we don't know what the fate of that will be, but I think they have a real chance. I think they've really, really built up. Um, we're seeing some good talent. Shabnam Ismail is, is fantastic. Laura Wolfart, Sunay Luce. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different different skills and different different talent in the, in the women's team. And South Africa are definitely right up there with you know, with the best teams in the world. I don't know whether it would be preemptive to say that they could win a World Cup soon. We hope they do. But I think definitely um, there's a good chance that they that they could compete uh, for a trophy in the near future. Okay, and uh, the conversation would be incomplete if we don't bring in Colpac. So that's been an elephant in the room. You've covered it, and there, there's so many complexities to it. South Africa has lost, like, so many great cricketers to England, I'm sure in other sports as well. So how do you see it as a journalist? I mean, is... Uh, I don't even know what the right question is. Do you see any advantages, disadvantages with Brexit coming? You think, uh, uh, how, how, what's a balancing act if there is any of not losing these cricket players, but then they won't have a spot in the team? Yeah, I think, I mean, pullback has come from a number of reasons. So I think the, the first reason is probably a business decision where players, or an employment decision where players decide that they want the security of a certain salary and a certain amount of playing time and so they take the deal for that reason and then i think there's the there's the disgruntlement reason so you know there's there's players like like simon harmer i suppose who get dropped from the team um like stian van sale uh, even like wayne parnell who get dropped when and and they, they can't see a way for themselves to get back into the team so they take a callback deal and then they they have opportunity to play more in england and and probably i mean if if there wasn't a Brexit looming, then maybe somebody like Harmer would be pushing for a place in the England side. Uh, I don't think that, I think as a country that produces a lot of players, uh, maybe South Africa's concern shouldn't necessarily hinge on how do we keep them, but rather how do we keep producing enough players? Because inevitably people will leave. I mean, South Africa doesn't wake up every morning and, and consider how they're going to keep their doctors, although they should. But, um, you know, professionals in all disciplines leave the country and, and go, go away. And a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the financial muscle of the rand. So we're currently almost 20 to the US dollar, 24 to the pound. You know, South African rands don't go very far. If you can earn in a foreign currency, then then you will, I suppose. So that's another reason that people leave. And that's not in cricket's control. You know, that's that's macroeconomics. So really, it, it's a varied reason that, that cricketers leave. And I think when they do leave, and especially if they leave and then say things about the system that they've left, it creates a lot of bad blood. So, you know, players like maybe, um, well, I mean, Faf Duplessis was a Colplac player for some time. So was Jacques Rudolph. They both came back. Uh, Rudolph actually played for South Africa either side of his Colpac stint. So, you know, there's definitely room for players to come back. And I think 
obviously every country wants to hold on to the talent, especially the talent that it it puts resources into producing. So someone like Riley Rousseau, who really you know benefited from whatever came with having uh, an association with with the South African team, including uh, access to medical care, and he was injured quite a lot at the beginning, um, access to health insurance and those sorts of things. You know, those are those are not resources that every South African has, and to put that into a player who then goes away can be very frustrating for the system. So. I suppose that's the balancing act is trying to figure out who do you put your resources into and and what will be the opportunity cost if they were to then leave. Uh, and then also how do you spread out and, and, and make sure that people have the game time that they want without kind of giving opportunities where you shouldn't be giving them. So someone like Dane Patterson, who's on the verge of signing a callback deal, and again, that's Brexit dependent and COVID dependent. You know, his whole thing was maybe that he wanted a guarantee that he, that he was going to play, but he wasn't even contracted to the national side. So that's a ridiculous thing for him. I'm not saying he did want that, but it certainly seemed as though that there was some sort of irritation with not being part of, of larger national plans. So, yeah, I mean, nobody is guaranteed a place and players need to realize that. And, and even those who are contracted nationally, uh, you know, can be dropped. But luckily, I think South Africa does produce a lot of players. So even though there's a, a definite slump now and there's a transition period going on, I don't think that they need to have this sole focused attention on how do we get back these 10 or 12 callback guys, because it's not like Huddersfield was doing great things in the South African team anyway, for example. Uh, you know, there's maybe one or two. Carl Abbott sticks out as someone. Simon Harmer sticks out as someone. Maybe Stian van Sale, who could have become a really good batsman here who can contribute to the national team. And other than that, there's a lot of players to work with here at home too. Hi, that's, that's quite, quite the answer, quite the thorough answer I was looking for. And uh, th- thanks for coming to the podcast. I know we have to cut it short, even though we could have gone for another 20 minutes. And uh, I'm a more informed fan after spending these 40 minutes, and I'm sure the listeners will be too. Thank you, Ferdos. Thanks uh, for your sure, time. No problem at all. Yeah, nice to be on. And um, yeah, thank you very much for having me.